I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. In today's beautiful episode, I got to have my buddy, Mr. Hunter Motz, on the show for, you could say, kind of the second time. A couple weeks ago, we had Brian Callen, I think potentially the funniest man alive, and Hunter on. And uh, this was just a private one-on-one with Hunter. We break down the ins and outs of education, our education system, how we interpret information in general, how we can potentially interpret that imp- information more effectively. Um, really, really excellent conversation. And I hope you guys absolutely enjoy it. Here's a little clip. And it all basically comes down to this Alvin Toffler, who is a futurist. He has this great quote. The illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. Thank you guys so much for tuning into the website. If you feel called at aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find yourself the five-day movement challenge that Hunter was actually graciously a part of. So you can guys get your movement started. Uh, just simple tips so you can integrate into your daily practice. Jump on to the website and uh, we'll shoot you that over. Um, I got a little quote. Quote comes from Miss Ida Rolf, and it goes a little bit like this. It's a little bit choppy of a quote, but I like the idea. Um, Over and over again, people come to me and they tell me, you just don't know how strong I am. They say say strength and I want to hear balance. The strength idea has effort in it. This is not what I'm looking for. Strength has effort in it. Wait, this is why it's where it's choppy. (laughs) Strength that has effort in it is not what you need. You need the strength that is the result of ease. Strength with effort is not what you need. You need the strength that is the result of ease. I like that a lot. Um, Thank you so much to Ample Meal for supporting this podcast. They are an all-in-one meal replacement, call it protein supplement, um, really delicious stuff. You got all sorts of delicious fats from nut, coconut. Um, it's got uh, green blends in there, spirulina, chlorella, etc. cetera, uh, collagen protein, probiotics. It's really solid stuff. Get yourself 10% off utilizing the Align code at checkout, amplemeal.com slash Align. Get yourself 10% off on that stuff. Uh, If you guys shoot us reviews on iTunes, which you can very easily do on your cell phone now, which is pretty fantastic, we will, and we read it, I'll shoot you out a box of Four Sigmatic Mushrooms. Quick review that we got, and then we'll get going with the show, is uh, from RSC Alive. What a treasure chest of knowledge. Aaron has definitely served up a beautiful array of shows with colorful guests, very very helpful knowledge, detailed experiences, expertise, and humor. Definitely worth my time. I'm a custom body or a custom woodworker. I listen to these podcasts on my headset as much as possible. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much. Shoot us a message on the social media at Align Podcast, and we will get you out some mushies. All right. I think we are good. I'm heading out to Portland, Oregon in like five minutes to go to Divine Play, which is a big Acre Yoga Festival. I'm teaching a little thing out there. So if you guys are in Portland, hit me up at Align Podcast on any of the socials. I'd love to link up. And um, oh, thank you so much for utilizing the Amazon affiliate link on the uh, top right corner of the podcast page. Anytime you buy crap on Amazon, buy that crap through that Amazon link, and we get about 7%. Takes it to Amazon, costs you nothing, absolute free, great way to support the podcast. Here we go, back to the show with Mr. Hunter Moss. 
Nine podcast. Yeah, let's 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 get into the phallus. Okay, so we're we're talking about phalluses mm. or phalli. The linga. The linga. Yeah. The Shiva linga. Shiva linga. Do you know yeah. anything about Shiva linga? Um, I took a, uh, a a course on religions in college. I think everybody has to take one. Mm. Um, and uh, Diane Eck, uh, who taught the course, Hinduism was her big thing. Oh. She wrote a bunch of books on Benares. And so we talked about the Shiva Linga a lot. Sweet. Good deal. Um, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having Appreciate me. It. Coming to the, where the heck are we? Los Angeles CrossFit, CrossFit Los Angeles <laughs> up in the office. Um, so just to get down to brass tacks, some of the stuff that, and we can you know get away from brass tacks as we go, but one of the main intentions or curiosities that I had with recording all this stuff was um, just getting into kind of the discrepancy of our education system and our approach to getting people really to think creatively, you know, outside of the box as opposed to just teaching to the test. And then if you don't do well to the test, then I'm a failure in my life and kind of setting you up for this deleterious pattern. Well, there's you know? a big difference between indoctrination and education. Um, indoctrination is that I'm going to beat a bunch of knowledge into your head that is then the official orthodoxy that you should then think for the rest of your life. And education, and it's even written into the words. So, you know, indoctrination, literally putting a doctrine in, as opposed to education, which comes from the Latin for to lead out. So, educare. And so education is really, I want to draw you out of yourself. I want you to get you to think for yourself, to be able to question. And we're not invested in any particular idea or any particular um, way of thinking or way of viewing the world. It's teaching you how to think and teaching you how to suss out the world for yourself. Mm. Um, and so we have an educational system that is really an indoctrination system, honestly. Um, there's a lot of talk in educational circles, and this is none of this is is you know malintentioned. So there's, it's important to set up before I get into anything that I'm a big fan of Hanlon's razor. So there's Occam's razor, which is all things being equal, the simplest explanation is the truth, and then there's Hanlon's razor, which is never a tribute to malice, but can be accredited to stupidity. Mm. <laughs> so in general, there isn't some grand conspiracy. There isn't. It's not that you know people are even smart enough to plan out most of these sort of bad ideas. Ideas, it's generally just obliviousness. Yeah. And that obliviousness arises out of that's how culture works, where there's a way that we do things. We've never particularly examined it. It's just our way. And it's only much later that we come to realize, oh, wait, that actually makes no sense. Great example, the squatty potty. Yeah. Uh, you know, you invent the toilet. You think the toilet is so great. Um, and then you come to realize, wait, why does everybody have hemorrhoids? Why does everybody have all these problems? Yeah. And it turns out that you messed up the mechanism and the alignment and the mechanics of how people should be pooping. And that actually the old way, uh, you know, the way that things are still done in Southeast Asia and many other parts of the world is actually... Uh, a much more functional, useful way. But it's I don't think that there was some grand conspiracy where the creators of the toilet, Thomas Crapper and his ilk, you know, got together necessarily with Big Farm and said, think about how much Preparation H we can sell. Yeah. So uh, I guess a big curiosity I've had is, is you're kind of you know, speaking of like the infrastructure, the mold that we're coming from, you know, affecting, of course, like how we're produced. And I think it's you know, this connection between even the way that we sit in schools, you know, we're, we're really coached, we're coached in a way to, to kind of like ignore our 
urge to go outside and climb a tree, you know, our urge to like get up and just scream or like pull your pants down or like just blah, you know, right. like explore, like, uh, like lick the desk. And it's like, nope, don't do, you sit, right? And you hunch over and you take notes. Yeah. You know, and so the big thing that my curiosity with all that is, is just how, have you seen or made any connections with that correlation of the way that we're moving in a classroom and our capacity to learn? Or not moving. Yeah, right. Um, well, I think firstly, in terms of learning, there's a great book by John Rady called Spark. Um, and in general, uh, physical movement activity uh, triggers the production of BDNF, uh, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is basically, he describes it as miracle growth for the brain. Mm -hmm. So this is just that very old Roman idea of mens sana and corpore sana, a healthy mind and a healthy body. Right. So you have to, even if you are just focused on learning outcomes, you want to be physically fit and you want to be active. I think the second thing that's important to realize is let's look at how humans, in inverted commas, naturally learn, right? How does learning work in a Paleolithic tribe? Well, it's, it is movement. There isn't a defined classroom, and it's inevitably in a, and mostly focused on story and apprenticeship. So right. there's lots and lots of stories being told around the campfire. Those stories are entertainment, but then within the story, there exists some core principle that you can mine out and reflect on. This is the way that Jesus taught. This is the way the Buddha taught. This is the way that Muhammad taught. This is how this is how Ben Franklin taught. Where there are lots and lots of it can be songs, it can be stories, it can be dance. But that's essentially how we teach. And then there's apprenticeship, where the you have the emotion of awe or cool, where you think that someone is so cool or so impressive, you're like, oh my God, how does that person do that? I want to be just like that person. Right. And in a tribe, you would have access to that person. So it wouldn't just be that you would think this person was cool you would then shuffle up to them and you'd spend time around them and you do your hair the same way and you dress like they did yeah. and you would start to copy everything that they did and you would start superficial with the hair and the dress but you would work your way in now in mass society what happens is, is that I think that Michael Jordan is cool but I never meet Michael Jordan. Yeah, right. So I never come to understand what is it that Michael Jordan is doing that allows him to be successful. All I ever have is this image. And when I then, the image I see is Michael Jordan next to the Big Mac, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna eat the Big Mac so that I can be a professional athlete. So yeah. advertisers have figured out how to tap into and essentially hijack these emotions of awe and blind copying. Um, and the problem is, is that kids are doing the wrong behaviors to try and achieve the result that they want. Yeah. So part of, we, we talked before this about the podcasting revolution that's happening, mm -hmm. and part of that is, is that we now get to pull back the curtain. Um, so I'm a big fan of The Wizard of Oz. There's that great scene where you know they go to see the wizard and the wizard puts out this big booming voice and he has this image that he projects. And then Toto, the little dog, runs along and he pulls back the curtain and we come to realize there is no wizard. There's only a man pulling levers. Mm -hmm. And so with podcasting and with the internet, we can increasingly pull back the curtain. We can pull back the curtain and be like, okay, who are your heroes? How did they achieve the things that they want? And what are the things that are allow you gonna allow you to get what you want so part of it is is that it's important to realize that often there's such a focus on the educational system and reforming the educational system 
And you actually don't need to reform the educational system in some senses because you have the internet, you can create this content, you can share the best content, and what we can do is we can change the culture around the school system and ultimately create enough of a movement to then put pressure for institutional change. But in practice, even if you want institutional change of the educational system, before you can do that, you have to get the public clear enough on what they would want the system to be anyway. So either way, step one is use internet to educate public. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then you can get into that. Separately, I mean, the, the educational system that we have now is an industrial age educational system. And so that's why that classroom structure is there's a teacher at the front, they talk to the children, the children stay in their place, they do what they're told. Yeah. It's run like a factory. And, you know, Ken Robinson has that great TED talk that they then did the uh, RSA animate where they draw on the whiteboard with the black pen. I don't know if you've seen it. I have uh, my, my uh, assistant person, Kathy, is now, every time someone says something like that, she, Kathy, I hope you're listening, she's going to look that up and put that in the show notes. It's, and it's, a, it's amazing. It's a, cool. it's a really good thing. But that will sort of break down a lot of that industrial age educational system. And crucially, the thing that, and this is as close as you do get to conspiracy, <laughs> yeah. but there's this great quote, Kathy, I hope you're listening. Yeah, listen up. <laughs> listen up, right Kathy. <laughs> Kathy, Stop get on this. smoking weed. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, um, God, I can. I hope that Kathy smokes enough weed that she like just puts crazy shit in the show notes that have nothing to do with what we're talking about. Um, so, uh, Kathy, be free. Fuck the man. Do your own thing, Kathy. <laughs> um, but so there, there's this great quote from Woodrow Wilson. So Wilson was uh, president of Princeton and then governor of New Jersey and then president of the United States. And at some point in that progression, I think it was when he was governor of New Jersey, he said. Uh, he was speaking to the National Conference of High School Teachers, and he said, what we want is an educational system which produces two classes of people. One, which has the benefits of a liberal arts education is suited to creative work, blah, 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 blah. And then another, by necessity, a much larger class of people that is so turned off to thinking that they are only suited for the dullest, most routine work. Mm. So that's, in, in many senses, our educational system as it currently is, is designed for and is ideal for an industrial age education. You get a small managerial class that thinks creatively and innovates, and then a much larger class that just sort of does what they're told and does routine work and doesn't really think about things. Yeah. The problem is that that's not the world that we live in, and robots and automation are essentially taking over more and more routine work. So you now need a society where everybody is an innovator, everyone is being reflective, um, but the educational system is just doing its thing and is very much on the same trajectory and is not going to, of its own accord, it's gonna require real social pressure, is not of its, of its own accord gonna change at the speed that it needs to change. Yeah. So as an example, the example I like to use is there are currently three million trucking jobs in the United States. That's routine work. Um, there are already automated trucks on the road. So those automated trucks are going to, at some point, start displacing employees. Yeah. And what do those people then do? And the basic challenge is that work serves two major functions. One is to pay your bills, and then the other one is dignity and purpose. It allows you to feel of value both to your family, your community, your society. 
Um, and when you don't provide people a path to dignity, well, you end up with people finding their own paths to dignity, whether it's terrorism or drugs, drug dealing or something like that. People will find ways to sort of distinguish themselves and to stand out. And the question is only, you can't make people not be smart and not think. Yeah. You can only channel that energy constructively or they will find destructive outlets for it. Yeah. So we were talking about uh, body and movement and alignment and setting yourself up for success and put your foot in this position and all that. Right. And then all of a sudden, just by being in your body, all of a sudden, it becomes a therapeutic experience. Right. I wonder, uh, from your perspective, is there any kind of like recipe or some way to set individuals in our culture up for success? If we just shifted our metaphoric foot two inches left or whatever it was, is there anything that you see of like, let's just shift this thing around a little bit and it'll fall into place? Or is it? Yeah, there, there. No, I mean, I think there are certain core behaviors and certain core things in terms of mindset. So here's a, the, the one that I always use in terms of uh, education, but it's a, it's a much more general thing, is how do you feel about mistakes? Yeah, right. And that's, that's the number one thing is, um, so crucially there's a reason why we say I feel stupid, and that's because stupid is a feeling, and it is the feeling of shame. And what shame, every emotion motivates certain behaviors, and shame motivates hiding, it motivates putting things away. And the problem is, is that learning, or any sort of progress, whatever it is, requires um, embracing mistakes, analyzing mistakes, using mistakes to improve. Yeah. So think of the example I love to use is the FAA. A plane crashes, what do they do after that plane crash? They get out all the wreckage, they analyze it, and they figure out what they need to do to make sure that that type of plane crash never happens again. Instead of instead of shutting down the airline and just yeah. not flying anymore. Or <laughs> denying that the accident <laughs> happened. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I did this, uh, I did a talk yesterday at Los Angeles Valley College um, to help them sort of reboot their tutoring program. And um, there, I told this this very thing. And then the follow-up bit I usually use is, by contrast, there's like the Soviet uh, aviation system where they just sort of bury all the wreckage in a field and shoot everyone who was involved and deny that it ever happened. Yeah. And just at that moment, a former Soviet air lieutenant walks into the room. <laughs> <laughs> and it just gives me the dirtiest look. It's amazing. Um, so, I, you know, I committed major cultural faux pas there. But yeah. then I, I made it up later by telling a different Russian Fucking story. No. Yeah, I did. I sucked his name. But that's, that's, that's what I'm willing to do. That's what I'm willing to do for America. So you're welcome, America. I ruined relationships and then fixed them. Um, so, but um, anyway, the... Uh, the, the the point is, is that, yeah, the number one thing is how do you react emotionally to mistakes? And a lot of it is you can instead adopt the attitude, I think a great metaphor for this is video games. Mm. Um, because video games, you die, but then you don't say, oh, I just didn't get the Call of Duty gene, I'll never be good at Call of Duty, and then like mm. break the game, throw the pieces away, burn them, bury them in a hole. Sure. Instead, you're, you understand that that's a feature of playing video games. Mm. You're supposed to die. And then when you die, you play again, and you keep playing, and you keep iterating the way that you play until eventually you figure out how to beat the level, how to get good at the thing. 
So that sort of attitude towards failure, which you sometimes hear in Silicon Valley, fail forward, fail sure. fast, um, that's really the attitude that we need. And if you instill that attitude in society, then what happens is there are so many problems that we know that we have problems, but rather than dealing with them and engaging with them, we just avoid them. Yeah. And the key is to bring them out of the place of shame and be like, that's the human experience, dude. Like, failure is what being human is about. It's then what you do to the failure, how you react to the failure. That's what determines whether we're improving or getting worse. Yeah. What is the, the term? you? I heard you mention it. I think it's like you said, um, some, is it like rationalist versus intuitionist? Is that yeah. the, are, those, are those the correct terms? So these are sort of two different models of the brain. Um, and so I think it's important to realize that a lot of this comes down to what are humans good at? Yeah. Uh, so this has always been a big, big question. Why is it that humanity has come to become the dominant apex species on the planet? And that's something that we've been trying to figure out for a long time. And how do we specifically, so Jared Diamond has this in Guns, Germs, and Steel, the book begins with what he calls Yali's question. So Yali is this Papua New Guinean guy that he knew, and he says, why does the West have so much cargo? Mm -hmm. So why does the West have so much material prosperity? Why is it so rich? And Diamond sets out to answer Yali's question. But Yali's question is the big question of human history. How do we get the good stuff? And the good stuff is not just material prosperity, it's also health, it's happiness, it's a sense of community and belonging. It's all of the things that make a fulfilling life. Yeah. Um, and the West tends to focus narrowly on material prosperity, but it's all those different parts. And so this was the big question as well in the Enlightenment. And they tried to figure out, what are humans good at? Why, how do we get success? How do we get more success? Yeah. And their answer was this thing, reason. And so there was this idea, oh, reason, that's how we solve problems, that's how we fix things. And they implicit in this was this sort of Cartesian, so Cartesian just comes from Descartes. Um, so some people's names make for really, really good, uh, <laughs> really, really good adjectives. Uh, so, you know, you can take Locke and John Locke and it becomes Lockean mm. and that works quite well. Mm. Descartes doesn't work very well. So Descartian doesn't work as well. So they just were like, chop off the first part, Cartesian. Yeah, right. Um, so, so this Cartesian duality between thinking and feeling, and really between the mind and the body. Um, and even Descartes knew that this was slightly problematic because clearly the mind and the body are connected. So then he made up this idea that, oh, but they interface at the pineal gland. And he didn't know what the pineal gland was. He was just like, here's a doohickey in the brain that looks like it could be the point of connection, yeah. <laughs> right? So this, this sort of rationalist idea of, you know, reason is good, emotion is bad, has been a theme in Western history for the last few hundred years. Yeah. Difference is, is that Descartes was guessing at brain function. We don't know all of brain function, but we now know enough to know that that is a bad model of the brain. And there's been a bunch of science that has displaced that. So there's uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow yeah, is great. one of the big books. Um, there's all of John Haidt's work uh, on moral psychology, and he has this great paper uh, called the uh, the the the, 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 the emotional dog and its rational tail, or something like that. I can't remember the exact paper, but if you if Kathy, Kathy yeah, if Kathy Google's John <laughs> Hyde, put the bong down, <laughs> put Kathy. the Kathy bong down, Kathy. <laughs> 
H A I D T. She'll ask me. Yeah. That's yeah. Good. Um, but but uh, and both of John Hyde's books. But the idea is that basically mostly people are emotional, and then their reason is mostly recruited to then justify what they're feeling. And if anybody needs any evidence of that, I would direct them to a year known as 2016. Mm. If you look up 2016 and just read pretty much anything that happened in that year, you can see that a lot of people had a lot of feelings uh, right. politically. And then it's happening now. Yeah. It's extending into 2017. Yeah. 20, 2017, otherwise known as 2016, part two. Oh, um, and we justify these. And, and you can see this on issues, pretty much any issue, abortion, gun control, uh, uh, how do you feel about Donald Trump? Uh, how do you feel about Vladimir Putin? Um, spend time, you know, look at look at how spend some time with Russians who like Putin, and then watch the narrative spin. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so in general, it, just have a conversation about anything with somebody from another culture, and you will see that there is a whole different story that's being told, grounded in whatever feelings they have about those things. And then the, the, the sort of the other big piece is this book, uh, Descartes' Error by Antonio and Hannah Damasio. And they're at USC, and they had this patient named Elliot. And Elliot was, uh, I think he was like an investment banker or something, and then he had a brain tumor. And that brain tumor was at the base of his brain right above his nose. Uh, so part of his brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And in general, in neuroscience, you're not allowed to experiment on humans. Um, so the way that you very often find out brain function is somebody has a tumor or a stroke, and the result is that essentially some part of the brain is either removed or disabled. Mm. And then you see what does that do to overall brain function. Mm. So Elliot has this tumor chopped out, and he seems entirely fine. Um, because his uh, verbal fluency is unaffected, he talks perfectly normally, his IQ is unaffected, everything seems perfectly normal. So it would seem that essentially they remove the appendix of the brain. Like, yeah. oh, this doohickey doesn't do anything. And then it turns out that Elliot turn, starts making terrible decisions. He can't, uh, he fall, even though he's a sophisticated investment banker, he falls for all these very obvious con artists. Right. Uh, he leaves his wife and ends up marrying, I can't remember if it's a stripper or a prostitute, and then he can't decide where to go to lunch. He tries to figure out where to go to lunch at 11 a.m., and he sits there for the next four to five hours trying to rationally figure out do you know table settings how many places are there parking how far is the drive nutritional information cost and he can't solve the problem hmm. and it turns out that that's because lunch is a mostly emotional decision i feel like having a salad i right. feel like thai food and there's a constant dance back and forth between that rational and intuitionist information. So John Haidt had a podcast with Sam Harris, and at the and they've they've bickered back and forth lots and lots. Um, and Haidt said, you know, the difference between you and me, Sam, is that you're a rationalist and I'm an intuitionist. And so Haidt has this awareness that constantly his feelings are driving his thinking. And the question is, what feeling is driving your thinking? And very often, you don't know. Um, because if you think, it's not, it's not that you and I are sitting around here and we're saying, oh, obviously, I have these super strong feelings. The feelings are sort of underneath the surface. But 
I'm sure that in your work, you've encountered that a lot of people have had feelings that are driving their thinking for years and years and years without them even realizing it. And then there is a process of essentially consciousness raising where you bring those emotions from the subconscious into the conscious. And suddenly it's like, oh, that was there all along. And now that it's out in the open, now we can deal with it. Um, So the rationalist model, I'm just going to go ahead and say this, is dumb. Mm. Uh, it's really bad science. Um, it's the most of the science people like Kahneman. Kahneman's work is fr- Kahneman's work is mostly with Tversky, and then there were a whole bunch of other people. It's from the seventies. Um, uh, Descartes' error is from the nineties, and then you know Height's work is yeah nineties two thousands. So this is old. Uh, the the whole rationalist model, and it was invented hundreds of years ago, and it makes no sense anymore. Um, but you're still going to have people who will pay lip service to the idea of the intuitionist model. They don't live practically in that way because what it requires, the intuitionist model, is a level of humility because at all times you have to be wondering what feelings are driving my thinking without me even realizing it. What cultural biases do I have that I'm not even aware of? They don't call them cultural blind spots because they're sitting there in open view and you're totally aware of them. They call them cultural blind spots because most of the time you're blind to them. And in fact, you only really become aware of your cultural blind spots when you're brought into conflict with another culture that sees the world in an entirely different place. And part of what we talked about before the podcast is is, you know, you grew up in Western Pennsylvania, which is quite politically red. Mm. Uh, you've then spent a lot of time in the politically blue parts of the United States. Forever since then, yes. yeah. <laughs> and then on top of that, these experiences of vagabonding around Southeast Asia. So all of that is, you know, and then we talked about the squatty potty, right? Yeah. You're, you're exposed to some other culture's way of doing things, and suddenly you're made aware that this thing that I thought was just the only way to do things actually isn't. There are other ways of doing it. And then what way does make more sense? Yeah. Does it make more sense to you know, sit on a toilet or to squat? Does it make more sense to think this or that? Um, and so part of what the experience of the 21st century is, uh, Katie O'Brien, who I co-wrote uh, The Straight A Conspiracy, the book that I wrote with, has this great analogy. And she says, this moment in history is humanity's first family dinner. Because uh, we've all sort of been off in our little corners. And then this is very much like Thanksgiving or Christmas or Passover, where suddenly we're all shoved up at a table together. And you don't necessarily want to be there. These are people that you really don't particularly talk to. And then you're like, what do these people believe? They think, what? Who are these crazy people? But then as you begin to talk, you come to realize, oh, they have some interesting perspectives. Like, let's learn from each other. Let's see what we can figure out. And let's see if we we can evolve a culture that's better than what we all started with. I want to give a quick shout out to the most delicious vegan protein I've found from Sun Warrior. Um, it is a raw, vegan, sprouted, fermented superfood protein blend. And uh, super delicious. Definitely my favorite vegan protein. And uh, get yourself 10% off utilizing the line code at checkout sunwarrior.com. A line code 10% off. Thank you so much. Tuning in. Here we go. Rest of the show. Boom, boom, bam. Yeah, you and, and as we were walking up here, we, we joked about the echo chamber thing, and one of the things that um, John, I think John Hyde mentioned this of he was 
promoting the balance between conservatives and liberals and all the things, you know, so it's like a yin and yang. If everybody was just liberals, you know, like, I'm very obviously, I wear, like, stretchy pants and no shoes, <laughs> you know, like, very obviously on that side of the fence, you know, but that being said, um, I, I, I do see value in having the people that are just the grounded, linear, you know, analytical folks, you know, and that's not to say that you can't be liberal and grounded and linear and all that stuff, but... I mean, you said the rationalist is, is concept is dumb. Just to play devil's advocate, I wonder, do you think that there is there is value to the yin and yang with that? I feel like the intuitionist mind can, can actually feed off of that and vice versa. It's when they separate from each other, that's when all of a sudden we become, you know... Well, I mean, what, what a lot of what this comes down to is, so I, I, there's, when I say rationalist is dumb, right, I don't mean that it's dumb to try and use that analytical capacity. That has real place and has real value. It's dumb to think that you are a creature of pure reason and that you are ever not being emotional. Every human being is always being driven by some emotions. You can manage those emotions. You may be engaging uh, your critical thinking much more, but that doesn't mean that the emotions have simply gone away. Yeah. It's not that your ventromedial prefrontal cortex suddenly went on walkabout, right? <laughs> and like It's like, oh, let me just take out my ventromedial prefrontal cortex, and then I'm going to sit and rationally solve this problem. Yeah. It's always there, and you have to be aware of it. The, there are certain people who believe about themselves that they are purely rational. And uh, a great example of that is Robert McNamara, who thought that he could run the Vietnam War entirely with statistics. And so what ends up happening is, is that McNamara piles up all these statistics, and he thinks that because it's statistics and it's math that he's seeing what's really going on on the ground in Vietnam cut to the end of the war, and if you ever watch The Fog of War, which is a great documentary that Kathy should put in the show notes. Going in there. Um, but there's, and Kathy, if you're listening, there's particularly, there's like, on YouTube, there's a nine-minute clip, and uh, McNamara talks about how at the end of the war, he decided that he was going to go and talk to the Vietnamese. Hmm. So they've been fighting, and now he's going to actually see what they have to say. And what does the Vietnamese guy say? He says, uh, you clearly have never read any history, because if you knew had read any history, then you would understand that you may have seen this as a war against communism, but we have suffered uh, thousands of years of colonial occupation. And so to us, you were just another invader. Totally. And that we would always be willing to fight to the last man for our freedom and independence. And so what you find is that, okay, statistics, that's great. It gives you this high-level view. But what it misses out on is that each side has its own history and it has two totally different stories and ways of viewing the event. And this is the basic problem of human tribal conflict and echo chambers, yeah. is that it functions like the Hatfields and the McCoys. So the Hatfields and McCoys are both drawing on the same history but they tell the stories in two totally different ways. 
So the Hatfields have a version of the story where, you know, they were the innocent people and then the McCoys were the aggressors and they, you know, really frame everything the McCoys do as these unprovoked attacks and, you know, they're just defending themselves when they kill McCoys and then the McCoys tell the opposite story. And you can look at Israel and Palestine, you can look at um, what, you know, the two totally different narratives around the Cold War, you can look at the two totally different narratives that are happening right now around Islamic terrorism. And there's a great meme that floats around that Kathy should find, um, which is a meme of uh, Luke Skywalker mm. from Star Wars. And it says, you know, Luke Skywalker, a young man whose family was killed uh, by a large and powerful military force. He becomes radicalized connects with an ancient uh, religion and masterminds a terrorist attack that kills 300,000 people. Mm. And that's really, I mean, so much of what Islamic terrorism is about is, is that they don't think of themselves as terrorists. They think of themselves as freedom fighters and they think of themselves as Luke Skywalker, mm. fighting an evil empire. And you can argue about the, the point is that it's not that either interpretation is true. They're both just stories that take those different events and weight them in different ways to create conflicting narratives. Mm. And this is what human beings do. Now, in terms of the yin and the yang, yes. Because crucially, I think what people don't realize is that we all, the, the, the shared humanity part of the equation is we all have these different mindsets. Yeah. So crucially, a good example is uh, optimism and pessimism. Everybody has optimism and pessimism. Now, if you talk to most Americans, they'll tell you optimism is better than pessimism. In fact, they do different things. So optimism is really good for making you happy and productive, um, but it makes you delusional. Hmm, and sure. pessimism makes you hyper alive to threats and dangers and challenges and problems, but it puts you in this sort of self-defeating place. Right. So the healthy thing to be doing is to be alternating between optimism and pessimism. And in fact, that's the opportunity for us is to come to understand how each of these mindsets work and to be able to use them intentionally and be able to switch between them. So sitting in any one mindset is problematic. Sitting around and being analytical all the time, you're going to miss a big part of the story. And that's what McNamara did. And the problem was is that it took the cataclysmic failure of that approach in the Vietnam War for him to say, oh, let me look at things a different way. Let me go talk to the Vietnamese and just hear what they have to say. And then he was like, oh, shit. They had a whole history before we showed up. That's why they have a totally different narrative and they're interpreting our actions in a totally different way than we're interpreting our actions. Right. And it would be great if they'd figured that out in 1963. Yeah. Are you familiar with, you're kind of describing um, the master and his emissary that blamed the Gilchrist? Are you familiar with that at all? Nope. Oh, dude. You're going to like, I mean, Lay you're going to read it and be like, you'll, you know, it's the same echo chamber thing when we read things that we're like, I am already fully agreement with. We're like, yes, mm -hmm. yes, I love yeah, this yeah, page yeah. turner. Great. It's going to be that. So oh, good. Yeah, yeah. It's important that, everything. Yeah, as important as, as we talk about echo chambers, that what I'm really saying is everyone should join my echo chamber. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I so I teach at like music festivals and I teach at various different ancestral health symposiums and stuff like that. And it's like, this is great and it's, valu it's valuable. 
but getting it into that public that is highly conservative or, the, or that public that is highly rationalist. You know, what I'd really love to see is a marriage between the two because I do see the value in both. You know, one of the things that Lane McGillchrist gets into with the master and his emissary for the second time is um, that the rational mind ends up trumping over the right hemisphere, right? And kind of what you're saying, it's kind of like the survival mechanism, you know, so if you're optimistic and it's all, you know, we, we could, you know, whatever it is, or creativity or all that, that's not going to allow you to survive in the jungle, you know, and so now we're at this point where we can more embrace that, you know, colors and creativity and poetry and your know, intuitive mind, but evolutionarily, it seems as though perhaps if we give that rationality enough weight, it'll just kind of take over the whole system. Does that make sense at all? Well, I think the first thing is, is that we don't have a choice but to embrace that. So yeah. the, the major challenge of, um, so there's a, there's a couple of things. So we talked about the problems with the industrial age education system. The question is, what does an information age or what is a modern educational system, what should it look like? Yeah. And it all basically comes down to this Alvin Toffler, who is a futurist. He has this great quote. The illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. Mm. So the environment is constantly changing. There's constantly new technology. And what that requires is a knowledge of learning how to learn. So you have a self-awareness. You can read the situation, and then you can quickly adapt again and again and again right. to whatever is required. So. Uh, crucially, it's very much this, this we, we are all explorers all the time. So, for example, you reach out to me, I'm like, I have no idea who this guy is, right? Mm -hmm. I look around, I Google up, I come in here, oh, this is an unfamiliar environment. But I have to manage, you know, what, what I have to be like, okay, what is going on here? I don't entirely know. I have to be open, I have to be receptive, I have to explore, I have to play. And then now we've sort of begun to establish a relationship. We've talked about dicks. We've talked about pooping. I pissed myself in front of you. There's a level of rapport that has been established. And that's, so the ten that's the tendency with most all of my first dates. I don't know. That says something. I don't know. Well, it says why I'm single. Um, but, but, the, but, the, but the barriers have been broken down. And so, you know, we've navigated that. And there's been a reciprocal exchange back and forth. I share my knowledge. You share your knowledge and then we just tell Kathy what to do yeah. um, and uh, Kathy this is really we're not telling you what to do hope and that she responds well yeah. because she's not gonna like this I'm, I'm screwed <laughs> <laughs> Kathy I'm, listen it will take very little googling for you to find very unflattering embarrassing things about me so go. take your revenge in the show notes <laughs> <laughs> um, this show brought to you by Kathy. <laughs> um, but 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 the the key is is that it requires that adaptability, and you can't have that adaptability without a lot of emotional awareness. Mm. You have to choosing humility requires an understanding of the emotion of humility and how you are going to trigger yourself into that state. Mm. Um, so you have to understand and you have to be able to read the situation and be like, this is an, I have just wandered into a foreign environment. I know nothing here. I'm utterly ignorant. So the analogy that I use is I've been recently experimenting with some of this kickboxing and boxing. And that is, you know, it's not an environment that I know or understand. So I have to deliberately, in the words of my 
Um, well, I'll save that bit. But I have to deliberately put myself into the position of humility. So I am constantly, you know, saying, oh, yes, please teach me. I'm making fun of myself to lower myself in status in the community. Um, I'm being super thankful and grateful for everything that everybody is doing. And it's all to trigger my role. I understand that I am at the bottom of the totem pole and that you all have a lot to teach me. And you just tell me what to do and I'm going to do it. Um, It's and, you know, I after after one of my classes, my teacher came up to me and he said, you know, you're not good at this. (laughs) <laughs> but you are like there's just a real receptivity that I appreciate and a real humility and you're just always so willing to learn and I go because I'm a teacher and I know what he's talking about and I say yeah beginner's mind yeah. Um, and he goes yeah you've always got to put the white belt back on totally. and that you can't put the white belt back on if you're being blindly driven by your emotions and so John Haidt has this great analogy that I love for how the mind works. And one, it's basically that the mind is like a rider and an elephant. So the elephant is that big, fast-thinking system, that reactive, intuitive system. And then on top of that, there's this tiny little rider that is the reflective, slow-thinking system. And our elephants are trained by our cultures and by our environment to behave in certain ways in certain situations. And for most people, the elephant just runs the show for their whole lives. But you have the ability with your rider, you can't suddenly change the direction of that elephant overnight. But if if the rider is patient with the elephant, it can nudge the elephant and retrain it over time to go in a different direction. And it takes time. I mean, that's what I was, the, the, you know, having read enough of this neuroscience, I found 2016 to be hilarious because there were so many people who uh, had this idea that Donald Trump was suddenly going to change overnight and that he was going to become a different person once he was in office. And the reality is that you can teach an old dog new tricks, but it takes some work. Right. right. If you've got that many years of habits, and we were talking about, for example, with me and my alignment, right, I have a misalignment. I have a tendency to put my weight on one foot. Can that be retrained? Yes, but it's right. going to take a significant amount of the rider nudging and being reflective and being conscious to be able to change that. Yeah. And that requires patience, it requires understanding, but you're not going to have a society where people are doing that without having significant emotional awareness. And we are now moving into an environment that, because it's changing so constantly, is an environment that necessitates constant behavioral change. Um, And so the idea that we can continue to not be emotionally aware is ridiculous and should be treated as absurd. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Barack, good old Barack Obama, who's like now the sexiest man alive, <laughs> you know, like since Trump's in office. Even like yeah. George Bush is all of a sudden kind of sexy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I'm serious. He's got his little book out. It's just or maybe a big book, you know. But it's just like, yeah, the the contrast between is pretty impressive. But one of the analogies that that Barack is Barack used was. Um, the country is more like a, like a cruise ship mm-hmm. you know, than like a, like a jet ski. Yeah. And then immediately upon him saying that, I'm like, 
that's the body, that's the human organism. Yeah. You know, we are a bunch of miniature cruise ships, and then we're a part of the grander cruise ship that is, you know, our culture, and then the grander one, which is, you know, on on so on and so forth up the up the chain, and. Uh, have, I really, you really should put that yeah, in and then and then maybe mention the product so we get to send a bunch of free stuff, coconut, whatever. Happiness uh, inside, yeah. coconut water. Don't mention that name. They don't give me. Oh, they don't give me free <laughs> shit. For the record, if there are any other coconut waters out there that do give free shit, we will totally yeah, exactly. ditch. We're very receptive to yeah, whatever brand this to bribery. is. To right <laughs> um, Yeah, but so yeah, so so changing the. Um, Changing the, the the path of the cruise ship is such a slow, potentially tedious process, and then there's also you know some of those like miraculous come to Jesus moments where people go through a near death experience, they go through a shamanistic whatever experience, they go through a fill in the blank thing, that all of a sudden the cruise ship turns into you know a catamaran for a minute. You know, right. it's like well, I don't the, even well, no, but I right. I think that's the thing is so. It's important. Good old Barrack. Um, is this? Is this? I don't know how to say his name actually. Barrack is Barack. Barack. Yeah. Or Barack. <laughs> I yeah, just always really... called him Barrack. I knew that wasn't right, but I think I just like the way it sounds. Yeah, it's, it's fun. I have a feeling this is. Is that how they say it in Western Pennsylvania? <laughs> Barack Obama. Yeah, right. Barack Obama. Yeah. Uh, I have more than one relative who thinks that Obama is a secret Muslim. Um, yeah, right. Which would be fine. Muslims have really the, the uh, what's it? The five prayers each day. That yeah. They I spent some time, we were talking about, like, you know, in Morocco and such. From a functional movement perspective, the fact they are practicing, I think, five times a day, uh, getting all the way down to the ground, they're pressing their forehead, and, you know, it's talking like when you're talking about pineal gland, all that stuff, and they're pressing their forehead down to the ground, come back up. You know, that's good business. And it's stopping that rational day, right? Mm -hmm. So going in there, like, literally, it's like it's like vitamin intuitive mind five times a day. No matter what you're doing, vitamin intuitive mind now. I know you're working. I know you're on Facebook. Intuitive right. mind. Anyways. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, good old Barrick. Good old Barrick. Barrick. Barrick Mama. Um, so, yeah, I mean, listen, it, it is the, the uh, I think the point is that, yes, the, the society is a collection of many, many cruise ships, and the larger f cruise ship flotilla that is, you know, the United States or the world, yes, it's very, very hard to turn. But as you say, there are these profound emotional experiences that have the ability to drop people out of sort of arrogance and complacency and into a place of humility. And it's really that big emotional change. If you could get humanity, all 7 billion of us today, right? You figure out whatever is the perfect, you know, three minute YouTube video where people are like, holy shit. I literally know nothing. Yeah. And then the conversation would be like, okay, well, let's all figure this out. Cruise ship would turn very fast. But it's reaching that emotional place where we all start having those conversations and start talking in a totally different way. I think the key to doing that is a conversation about culture. Mm -hmm. Because crucially, culture is transmitted, as I said earlier, by this blind copying. And it is when you realize that, holy shit, I have blindly copied stuff not only from my mom and dad, but from my community, from my entire country, and I literally don't know what I've blindly copied. Yeah. Like, there are things that have been running the show all this time that 
are often hundreds or thousands of years old. I literally don't know where they came from. What the fuck have I picked up from my environment? And let's figure out what that is because I don't want that shit running the show anymore. Some of it's gonna make sense and some of it won't make sense. And this is actually a really good segue into talking about atomism and holism. Mm. Because crucially in terms of Eastern and Western medicine, um, so there's actually really, really good science on why Easterners and Westerners think in such different ways. And it's just like we all have optimism and pessimism, we all have these two mindsets, atomism and holism. So holism is the tendency to see things holistically, so essentially to see the forest. But we also have this atomistic mindset, which is the ability to break things down into atoms, right? The smallest indivisible part. So instead I can see the forest as a series of trees, separate and totally discrete. Now, again, it's not that one is better than the other. To understand the forest, you have to go, you break down, you see all the individual trees, and then you sort of pull back like a painter and you see the big canvas and what it all adds up to. And then you're like, okay, now I have a better overview. Then you go back in and you break it up again and you sort of look more closely. And if you think about how a painter interacts with a painting, it's detail work, detail work, detail work, pull back, oh, that's what it looks like, detail work, detail work, detail work. So again, it's the dance between atomism and holism that allows you to actually make progress and figure things out. Hmm. But in our ancestral environments, uh, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Chinese ended up massively overfavoring either one or the other. And that came out of what they needed to do to meet their basic needs. So the ancient Greeks were uh, herders, they were traders, and they were pirates. Mm. Um, and saucy pirates, in general, it's every man for himself. Uh, you're like, screw everybody else, screw you assholes, it's all about me. Incredibly competitive. Um, and that's how their whole society developed out of that perspective. So they would go into the agora or marketplace and they would pick apart each other's arguments and they would just endlessly debate and fight for fun. Mm. And then they would go do the Olympics and it was all about standing out, seeing who could throw a stick furthest, seeing who could run furthest, seeing who was the best fighter. Uh, so you're, it's this massively individualistic society. Now, meanwhile, the ancient Chinese grew up in the environment of rice farming and the nature of rice farming is it's heavily based on water and I have my paddy field but I get the water from my paddy field from my uh, upslope neighbor's paddy field mm. and then my downslope neighbor needs my water so I can't just go it alone as a rice farmer right it's it's there's no Sarah Palin rice farmer she doesn't go rogue and do well um, instead, you have to have good relationships with your neighbors, and you have to maintain the cohesiveness of the community. So there's this very holistic mindset, and that then affects every choice that the Chinese culture makes. Confucianism comes out of that, which is all about relationships and what the appropriate relationships are. There's feng shui, which is about the flow of energies through the house, uh, yin and yang, this idea of complementarity, um, and it even affects the medical systems. So crucially, the Chinese never really developed surgery. Um, it was never a part of their medical practice. And in fact, the only there's these uh, there's these bodies that have been found in Western China that had were red haired and are the only bodies that have been found in the archaeological record that had had surgery. 
And that's because it requires thinking atomistically. It requires thinking, oh, there is a problem part to the body. We will remove the problem part and things will be fixed. Yeah. <laughs> and so what, what has happened is, is that Western medicine is, yes, it's scientific and it has that, but it also has baked in these cultural biases. And so if you think about the way that the Western medical system is structured, I go to my GP, I get some sort of evaluation, and then I am sent to a specialist. And the specialist says, oh, you have back pain. We will do something with your back. But in practice, as you know, and I'm sure the listeners to this community know, yeah. very often the source of the pain is not in the back. It might be in the foot. And obviously, you know, I, I use the uh, analogy of there's that children's song, the knee bones connected to the leg bone. And that's not how Western medicine thinks. It doesn't think systemically. And um, the opportunity is to figure out we have there's an opportunity to sort of reinvent everything where we now start to think, okay, so we've got all this pharmacology in, in Western medicine, we've got all this surgery, and that's great. But then there's all these other things. And what does a what does the medical system look like that knows how to dance between the atomistic and holistic perspectives? Yeah. And the way that you're going to bring, I think, systemic change into so, sort of modern medicine or Western medicine is by starting to have a conversation about cultural biases and to have a conversation about atomistic and holistic thinking. And Kathy, if mm. you're listening, the book to put in the show notes is The Geography of Thought by Richard Nisbet, mm. because that's what breaks down these two different mindsets. And it becomes very difficult for, it's very easy for Western medicine to sort of poo-poo because this comes down to they have power, you don't. Uh, they have credibility, you don't. But once you bring in the science of culture and these mindsets and Richard Nisbet's work, now how are they going to deny that they don't have a culture? How are they going to deny that they don't have cultural biases? And how are they not going to deny that, you know, the knee bone is connected to the leg bone? Yeah. I mean, these are very basic things. And it creates a narrative that is so clear and so accessible that now we get to that emotional place of like, oh, shit, I know nothing. What do we do? And how do we take the pieces that we have from all these different times and places and evolve something better than what any of us started off with? Yeah. Yeah, that's you got to go. You got to leave here in five minutes or something like that. But um uh, before we were talking, it's just, it's just so funny um, how everything that anyone says on a cultural or global or political, you know, whatever level, you can so easily drive that back to your physical body and the approach of how you work with yourself. And directly before we were talking about this, we are thinking about being comfortable to, to seamlessly move from working locally with a part and then globally and putting all the parts back together. Yeah. And it's the people that are, are just kind of like addicted to the myopia or focusing in detail. You know, all the tool they have is a microscope. They're going to be blind in their own way and then oh, there's yeah. the other people that all they have is a telescope they're blind in their own way you know but if we can kind of like this whole conversation if we can start to merge both of those that's when we really have big impact how do people find more about you and I mean you, we can stick around but you gotta you gotta have a place to be in it's 156 well, I right do want to just quickly yes and what you just said yeah, yeah, sure. so I mean and it segues into uh, yeah so we've we've created this uh, you know started with Brian Callen and I we were doing Brian Callen was doing a podcast where he would interview porn stars and stand-up comedians and MMA fighters I'm, I'm gonna I'm getting into that market real soon so <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he was doing that and then you know but 
but Brian <laughs> Brian also grew up internationally and was his dad was my dad's boss and we started talk we would talk about books all the time and I was like Brian like you have a podcast with some real downloads we can start getting some of these authors and some of these scientists on yeah. he's like really they would talk to me and I'm like dude they want to sell books yeah. and so we started booking those guests and then we interviewed like 200 different scientists and science uh, academic science is about as atomistic as it gets hmm. so they all know a lot about a little uh, they know their tiny little field and are clueless as to what's happening in the rest of science yeah. and so because brian is uh you know sort of part of the extended joe rogan universe um and is into mma and is into comedy uh the analogy became pretty obvious and i said brian what we should do is we should do mixed mental arts um, and so we should piece all these different pieces together and just essentially create a community that is constantly trying to evolve a better culture. Mm. Um, and the, one of the analogies that I'm really fond of is the Japanese have this technique of kintsugi. Uh, kintsugi, yeah, yeah, the gold thing. That's right. So yeah. you smash a pot, and then if the pot gets broken, you don't throw away the pieces, but you put the pieces together and you fill in the cracks with gold. And so that's very much what we're doing with the cultures of the world. How do you make kintsugi? How do you make uh, from all these different pieces? So we've got, you know, Western culture, we've got Arabic culture, we've got Indian culture, Japanese culture, Chinese culture, all these African cultures, Latin American cultures, and we've got, you know, Western medicine, Eastern medicine, there's, you know, the million and one acronyms that we talked about in terms of MAT and all of that. And how do we take all of that and then have a community that's constantly trying to evolve better and better and better systems? Right. So that's what mixed mental arts is. and. It's very much uh, a lot of people are jumping in and sort of helping out. Uh, we have people who are working on our website, um, and we're not paying them. We're not getting paid. Everybody's just chipping in. People are editing video. People are editing audio. Uh, people are writing blog posts. And so if anybody wants to get involved with that, we're always looking for people to chip in and to be involved. And then part of what we want to do is really you know, connect with podcasts like this one, um, and as many podcasts as possible to really create a community where we're all feeding off of each other and being idea pirates and stealing each other's ideas to evolve yeah. better and better ways of thinking. Yeah. Um, so that's that. Uh, the Straight A Conspiracy you can get uh, as a book, you can get it as an audiobook, you can also get it in Spanish, and that's available on Amazon. Uh, we're going to be doing a Straight A Conspiracy podcast. Um, it's going to be aimed at kids in 10 minutes an episode because. Again, the traditional educational system is not going to change anytime quickly. So we think that we're much better off basically having an insurgency from the podcast world. Um, and you can support us by either buying T-shirts on Mixed Mental Arts or donating to on Patreon to either Mixed Mental Arts or me personally uh, or to Straight A Conspiracy. Um, and yeah, we'd love to hear from you. There's a really active Facebook group. Uh, there's a Mixed Mental Arts subreddit. And um, there's a YouTube channel. Lots of fun stuff. I ran into Brian yesterday at Air Ones, the very trendy. <laughs> <laughs> trendy. I was buying a $17 salad. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's what Brian does. Uh, Brian, yeah, Brian, Brian, <laughs> Brian, um, 
likes Erewhon a lot. It's a good place. It's a good place. And then the thing, my favorite thing about Brian is he has a soft spot for any chocolate bar that has the face and name of the farmer on it. Right. Like if if it's like some sort of you know fair trade organic chocolate where it says like. Juan Juan Monsalves, yeah. right, is on there, and he's like, "Oh, I feel really connected to my cocoa grower." Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so Brian, I uh, invited him to come in here and check out check out all the stuff, and uh, so now I know to get some uh, fair trade local Spanish farmer chocolate. That's, yeah. the, that's the way to his heart. If you cookie crumb that shit and just like a little fair trade guy, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty easy to learn to place his cheese. He's also very, any fine cheese or fine wine. Brian is, um, is uh, like, it's a, if, if Brian was a five-year-old, he would be perfect target for pedophiles because he's the easiest to learn to a van. Perfect. All you have to do just is my pedophile. Yeah, exactly. It's you just, you just, if you dangle some cheese outside of any place yeah. or some, you know, really sort of snooty coffee or chocolate, oh, Brian is yours. You can, you can get him to do anything. Cool. Sweet. Um, what I was going to say is he was wearing a shirt that I thought was actually pretty, legit, pretty, pretty rad. It was like uh, something martial arts, something or another, but it was a joke. I didn't realize it was a joke. Might be the shirt you're talking about. I thought it was a great shirt. Yeah. I endorsed that shirt. I'm not sure if it's <laughs> <laughs> this yeah, full endorsement of the shirt yeah. that he was wearing yesterday. Um, well, that's that's good. But but actually, the, the funny thing is, so Brian has two other podcasts, um, and one of them is the Fighter and the Kid. Um, and a lot of what we're doing is uh, the Fighter and the Kid like has nine million downloads an episode, so it does really well. Um, and our, we're just sort of stealing the playbook on everything that they're doing because the point is to take all of these ideas that have existed for a very long time. Like Nisbet's work is from the 90s. Yeah. And these ideas don't move and they need to be packaged and disseminated. And that's, I think, so much of what uh, what Brian and then Brendan Schaub, his partner and the fighter and the kid do so well, yeah. is they figured out, okay, great. There's this book called The Geography of Thought. Do you actually need to read it in order to get the core concepts? Oh. No, you do not. Oh. So even though Kathy is going to link to that, in yeah. fact, you already have co the core stories, and you can go around. And the real point of uh, a lot of um, these books is, is that what it does is it's really it's a credibility. So now, if if I'm, for example, you're going around and you're talking to somebody about this atomism and holism stuff, which you probably observed for years and years, and then they start acting skeptical and they're like, why you know, blah, blah, blah. Then you're like, oh, have you not read The Geography of Thought by Richard Nisbet? Really a superb book. Yeah. Now, you may not have read it, but the point is, is that now they kind of, now they've got a problem, right? Emotionally, they have a problem because they wanted to discredit you, and now you just drop some knowledge on them. Mm. And now it's like, if they want to take it, they instead of it you them taking it up with you, they now have to take it up with Richard Nisbet, who is one of the foremost experts on culture. Hmm. So, and it's this book is impeccably researched. So I think a large part of we have on mixedmentalarts.co we have a list of essentially a uh, hundred of the core books and sort of broken down into categories. But there, it's going to be interesting. A lot of what we now want to do is turn everything into memes, short videos blog posts right. and then there's essentially you know you could then work up and read the book 
But I think what's going to be interesting is seeing how much do people actually read the book and how much do, <laughs> do they just use the book to sort of lay that knowledge on people who are skeptical and aren't really engaging with those ideas. Cool. Um, but yeah, but listen, I'm, I'm excited to uh, establish a relationship between the mixed mental arts community and the aligned community. Yeah, let's keep doing it, man. Yep. Appreciate it. Rad. All right, over and out, you got to go. Peace out. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening and thank you Ample Meal for supporting this podcast. Ample Meal is a bottle of deliciousness. It's a comprehensive full meal designed to provide quality fuel when you don't have time to sit down and make a sandwich or whatever you're into. Uh, really good stuff. Just throw some water in there and it's got fats from macadamia, coconut, chia seed. It's got wheatgrass, barley grass, chlorella, various types of fiber, probiotics. Really good stuff. Get yourself 15% off using the aligned code at amplemeal.com and uh, uh, A-L-I-G-N is the code, 15% off on that purchase. All right, guys, thanks so much. Thank you once again so much for tuning into this podcast. If you guys want to show some support, show some love for what we're doing here, um, you can jump onto the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. And then from there, a uh, couple things you can do, one of which you could actually donate through Patreon. There's a link on the right-hand sidebar of the blog and podcast page. Uh, you can utilize the Amazon affiliate link uh, anytime you or anybody you know buy some crap on Amazon please and thank you bookmark that link every time you do it we get something like 7% of your purchase and it helps support this show it is awesome so great as well something you could do that is ultra helpful if you or anybody that you knows um, has ears and likes books uh, tell them to check out the audibletrial.com slash align that's a-u-d-i-b-l-e trial.com slash align and then from there that is uh, you get a free audio book from audible they have something like I don't know a bajillion different titles to choose from uh, one that I would recommend that I got from them was Shantaram I it's a huge book and uh, again all free no matter what size the book you get and that got me through I listened to that as I was traveling through Morocco and uh, just really really amazing website uh, amazing service couldn't recommend it more and uh, it kicks us down some scratchola every time you guys utilize that free thing costs you absolutely nothing and you get a free audiobook and you support the show boom um, thanks so much for reviews on iTunes that's greatly appreciated and thanks just in general for listening thanks for supporting thanks for for spreading the word all right I can't express enough how much I appreciate all that if you guys ever have any questions or comments you feel free to email me directly at Aaron at aligntherapy.com and I would love to talk. All right, see you guys. Thank you for listening and remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.